0: Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosley, the teaching pastor at Kingsville Church. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So if you have a hard copy or pull up your app or whatnot, but we're going to be looking at Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. Now, it is great to be back here because uh, I spent three years of my life here at Renewal. Uh, I was on staff here, and uh, Pastor Jared was a mentor for me and Uh, He ended up uh, uh, seeing uh, my relationship with God grow, ended up seeing uh, me date a a girl that I got married and we've had two kids and he still serves as a mentor and so I look around here and it's it's been about uh, nine months since we started our own church and have been back here and goodness, a lot of new faces which is encouraging because that means God is growing this church and I just can't say how much I love your pastor. He is an incredible guy, still a mentor for me, uh, still gives me advice and guidance, and man, loves, loves, loves Jesus. And uh, man, so it is really good to be back. Hey, I don't know what renewal's tradition is, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word. We're going to look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11, and when I get done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and if you'd like, you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Philippians chapter 3. Whatever hat this is Paul talking to the Philippian church. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for these dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though. I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience in the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and asked for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I've discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, when Jared asked me to, to talk about uh, world religions, it's kind of ironic. This is what I uh, studied uh, in college. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia. And when you grow up believing something, you rarely kind of take a step back and question what you grew up knowing. And so when I went to college, I wanted to study the religions. I wanted to know, hey, is what I believe actually true or right? What's gonna, what is it gonna look like when I put it to the test of other world religions. So it was really exciting to, for him to say, hey, I want you to talk about this. Now, we're going to get to world religions. In fact, I think that uh, this passage has a lot to do with it. But if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I can't wait till he talks about Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, I'm not going to actually go through the ins and outs of that religion, of those religions. But I think what you'll see is that this passage is really relevant when we look at Christ and every other founder of whatever religion. So we're going to look at this passage in two parts, verses 1 through 11. The first part is this, there's something that Paul considers garbage. And he says this, uh, uh, he says this in verse he says this in verse 8. He says everything else when compared to knowing Christ is garbage. So the first half of this message, we're going to look at what is this garbage that Paul is talking about and then secondly as we look at this passage we're going to see what is the goal of life for paul so first garbage and those are paul's words not mine and then the goal of life according to paul paul he he launches into this passage because he is really concerned for the philippian christians now this church he started about 10 years ago and he's in jail at the present moment, and he is writing this letter because he feels this burden to make sure the faith of these Philippian Christians is strong. He's unable to come see them at the present moment because he's in chains, but he deeply loves them, and he wants them to stand strong in the midst of opposition, and so he writes to them. And in Paul's absence, now he's, you know, he's planted several churches at this point, you know, called the Apostle, he's the one who founded so many churches, and while Paul is in prison, there is a leadership vacuum. He's in prison, his influence is diminishing, and so people are trying to step in and be the leaders, except the problem with that is they're not just leaders, but they're false teachers, and this is what Paul is trying to address, and here's what the false teachers are saying about Jesus. They're saying Jesus is great and he's good, but if you really want salvation, it's not quite enough. These teachers are saying that if you really want to be saved, you have to know Jesus and you have to be circumcised, which was a Jewish ritual at the time. And so these false teachers are saying Jesus plus good works equals salvation. Yes, Jesus' death was important. Yes, his death was necessary. His death was critical. But there's more. You need more. There are things that Jesus has accomplished that get us close to salvation but if you really want to be saved there's some good works that you have to include in the mix to truly have a relationship with God basically what they're saying is uh, you need to be more Jewish you need to follow the laws of Moses circumcision was an external sign in the old testament showing that you belong to the physical people of Israel these teachers are saying, hey, for you to be truly saved, you have to have been circumcised. You have to have these good works. Jesus plus good works, that's what's going to equal salvation. So Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, and it's in this section, in this passage, he, he kind of confronts these false teachers, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he's saying, if you want to talk about good works, let's have at it. Because whatever, that, whatever good works that you can write down, I, I will exceed what you've done. So, so if you want to play that game, let's go ahead and go after it. Let me show you my pedigree. You can think of it like this. Let me show you my trophy wall and see if this looks better than yours. And so he launches into these trophies of good works. And you can look at it. And uh, the first one comes in verse 5. Paul says this. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Paul had an impeccable start to this whole religious thing. right? Like this was like according to Jewish custom, according to Jewish law. It's like if you wanted to, 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 to cross your T's and dot your I's, like what was necessary was for you to get circumcised when you were eight days old. And according uh, to the rituals of Jewish law, this was necessary. And Paul says, I've done that. So... Apparently, Paul's family were close followers to the Jewish law, and and so when it comes to the right rituals, I brought with me some trophies. When it comes to the right rituals, Paul's like, yep, I got that covered. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, but then Paul keeps going. He says, I wanna show you something else. Not only was I circumcised when I was eight days old, but I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. So here's what he's saying. I'm part of God's chosen people. I'm the one who God has set his love on, the nation that God showed favor to. God had made this covenant with Israel, and he said that his love and his care and his presence would be on these people, and they were special and they were set apart from the rest of the world. And so, in terms of connections to his past, Paul is saying, not only have I done the right rituals, but listen, I have the right ancestry. Trophy two on his wall. He keeps going. Paul continues, not only was I circumcised when I was eight days old, not only am I a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, but he continues. He says, I am not just a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, but I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Throughout Israel's history, Benjamin always stood out. In fact, Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was faithful to the tribe of Judah when uh, the northern and southern kingdoms split apart. So think about uh, think about uh, if you were a citizen of Israel, think about that being like you're an alumni of Harvard, right? But even within Harvard, there's this special prestigious club called the Porcelain Club. Anyone heard of it? It's like special, set apart. Takes a lot to get get in there. Very prestigious social club on campus. And Paul says, Listen, that's me. I have the right honors right here. He keeps going, right? He says, Okay, I'm circumcised, pure blooded citizen of Israel, tribe of uh, Benjamin. Then he says, I'm a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. Paul was really proud of his ethnic heritage, he didn't forsake Jewish customs or the Jewish language, or Jewish practices. So when the, uh, uh, the Greek nation would overtake Israel, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the folks, uh, a lot of the Jewish people, they said, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna remember the Jewish language, we're gonna forget it, we're gonna assimilate, we're gonna fit in, and Paul said, that's not me. I kept my Jewish heritage. I, I still know the language, I still practice the customs. He upheld the ways in which he was raised. He had the right ethnic spirit. And he continues, he says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Now, you might remember that the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the elite. They were uh, one of several religious parties that followed the laws of God and told others how they should live as well. And out of all the religious parties that pledged allegiance to God, the Pharisees were the strictest. In fact, there's this uh, confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and he's rebuking them. He says, you tithe these little, uh, uh, you tithe these, uh, these herbs and these mints, you, know, you get all these spices together, and you give a tenth of these away to the temple for God's house, but you neglect the things that are most important. You neglect justice and mercy. According to the law, the Pharisees followed it to a T, And so, according to Paul, who was this Pharisee, he had the right devotion. The trophy law is looking pretty good about this time, right? But he keeps going. He says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Paul was so convinced that Jesus was not God and his claims of being God was blasphemy, that he tried to round up anyone who said that he was and he tried to throw them in jail or get them persecuted. He was ruthlessly zealous, a fierce persecutor of the early church. In terms of right passion, that was Paul. And finally, too, this showcase of trophies that Paul lays out he says and as for righteousness I adopted the law without fault you know in Paul's eyes he had never broken the Ten Commandments you know if anyone ever fit the definition of a good person if anyone fit the definition of a religious person Paul says you're looking at me Paul had the right morality So here's Paul's trophy wall and to anyone in this world you look at this and you think that's pretty good right like you you look at this and you think yeah Paul Paul has it all together his resume is pretty impressive if anyone is in right standing with God it's got to be Paul right I mean with all the things that he's done, all the things that he's accomplished, all the things that he's perfected, it's like if God if Paul were to die in that moment and he were to appear before God and he were to show him all his trophies, surely God's going to say good enough. Now I want us to think about how this is relevant for us today. Have you ever heard someone say, "You know what? Me and God, we're good." Because, you know, I was baptized as an infant, or I was baptized when I was a teenager. You know, me and God are good because, you know, I go to church on the holidays. You know, when it comes to rituals, check. I'm sure you've heard people say that. Or in regards to honors or ancestry, maybe you've heard this before. You know, me and God are good because, you know, my my family's Catholic, and faith is a big part of my grandparents' story. My mom, you know, she's a saint, so every time those church doors open, my mom is there. And we appeal to our ancestry to justify that we're right with God. What about the person who says, you know, overall, I'm a good person, so me and God, we're good. You know, sure, I do some bad things, but, uh, you know, the good outweighs the bad, and so, you know, I think God thinks I'm great. Paul was one of the most moral, upright people on the earth. And Paul's saying, I'm not good enough. Consider the person who's passionate, sincerely passionate about the religion that they follow. They're devoted and sincere and authentic in their beliefs and their practices. Yet, like Paul, you can be sincerely devoted, sincerely authentic, and sincerely wrong. For Paul, he was misdirected and misguided. And Paul puts all these trophies on display. And Paul could look at this trophy case and say, isn't this great? Like, I am the man. If anyone is deserving of God's favor and salvation, surely it's me. But that's not what he says. What he says is in verse 7 and 8, he says this. He says, I once thought all these things were valuable. But now I consider them absolutely worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else, all these trophies, all the accomplishments, all the accolades, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Paul is emphatic. He's saying these trophies are worthless. They're nothing. They're garbage. They're not assets. They're liabilities. Now I want us to pause for a moment and see how this might connect to the major world religions that are uh, existing in our world. Uh, you know, out of the uh, majoring in world religions, right? Like you're learning about, you know, Buddhism and Islam and, and whatever. Honestly, I can't remember much about what I learned in college, uh, but I do remember uh, a picture that uh, I had a mentor show me one time. He said, imagine there's a mountain. Maybe you've heard this before. Imagine there's a mountain and God is at the top and man is at the bottom. Every major world religion says for you to have a relationship with God, you have to work for it. There's so many things that you have to do to get right with God, to be back in relationship with God. And so you think about Judaism. To be right with God, God on top of the mountain, for you to have a relationship with him, you have to follow the, the Torah. You have to follow the law. When you think about Hinduism... Hinduism says you have to live a life of morality, and as you do, you'll die and you'll get reincarnated, and then you'll die and get reincarnated, and then you'll die and get reincarnated. And this cycle happens over and over again until finally you reach nirvana, but it's all based on how you live this life. It's based on your goodness. You think about Buddhism, you know, the way to salvation. Now, they don't. a lot of them don't even believe in a deity, but the way to truly be saved, in the words that they use, is this eightfold path of enlightenment to fully separate themselves from the world so they never experience suffering. And then you have Islam, the five pillars of faith. First one is a declaration of faith and then they have prayers they have to follow, they have to give, they have to fast during the month of Ramadan. And if you're a Muslim, a good Muslim, you have to visit the site of Mecca where Muhammad was. And so every other religion, major world religion says, the way you get to God is you have to work for it. And Paul is saying in this passage, you're never going to be devoted enough. You're never going to be moral enough. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be passionate enough or righteous enough. It doesn't matter what good works that you present to God. It's not going to matter at the end of the day. Paul says instead, as he refutes these false teachers, it's not Jesus plus good works equals everything. It is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In other words, you can't say I'll take Jesus, but God look at my good works. Like at the end of the day, it's only based on what Jesus has done. Every other world religion out there says you have to work for it, you have to do good. And Christianity, think about this mountain again, God at the top, Man at the bottom, it's the only world religion where God comes down the mountain, rescues us, and brings us back into relationship with himself. Christ does all the work. In fact, that's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, I consider all these things worthless because of what Christ has done, not what we do. Paul is going to say if there's any boasting, if there's any boasting to be done, it's going to be in Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only one who obeyed God's law perfectly. He was utterly and totally sinless. Jesus Christ was the full expression of God's righteousness in his words, in his teaching, in his inner character, in his obedience, in the works he accomplished, in his relationships, in his attitude. He never sinned. And all that our holy God requires, Jesus fulfilled. And he became our substitute. He stood in our place on the cross, spilling his blood, taking on the condemnation and judgment of God, bearing the penalty of our sin so that we could be reconciled with God. We can't add to that. Which is why Paul is going to say, Jesus plus anything it equals nothing. And when you appear before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? I'm hoping there's nothing that comes out of our mouth that points to what we have done. When he asks, why should I let you into heaven? You appeal to Jesus and his sacrifice and his cross-scarred hands and you say, I shouldn't be in heaven. But based on what he has done and the penalty he took and the gift of righteousness that he gives and his love for us, I can only be here if I appeal to Christ. Paul is saying here, don't look at what I've done. Look at what Jesus has done. Now, when we do that, we make Jesus look great, which is Paul's aim in life. And the trophies make us look great, although they're garbage in God's eyes. But I wonder now, before, now it's the garbage now, the good works, we've answered that question. And before we turn to Paul's goal in life, It's important for us just to stop and pause and ask ourselves, is there any sort of trophy wall that we may be building? Is there something that you hold up to inflate your ego or make yourself look esteemed in people's eyes? Is there something that you want to make sure people know about you in conversation, you just slip it in? What do you have that causes you to beat your chest and say, hey, look at this. We're all prone to build the trophy walls. We love building these walls because it highlights our success and it showcases what we've done. We'll make sure that in conversations people might be aware of our doctorate degrees or our publications so that people can see us as learned or we'll, drop in conversa- we'll, dro- we'll name drop in conversations so people can see us as connected or we'll promote our vacations and adventures so people can see us as traveled. We'll highlight our expertise in whatever so people see us as trustworthy. So we're constantly wanting people to see us as something, and Paul says, don't look at me, don't look at this, look to Christ. It's the same statement that John the Baptist would make, that I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. Now we're turning to the goal of Paul's life. Look with with me at verse 10 and 11. This is what he says in verse 8. 8 and then 10 and 11. He says, now that this is behind us, now that we consider these good works garbage, now I'm I'm about to point you to what really matters in life. This is what he says. He says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the whole goal of his life. That's what he's about. The singular, all-consuming passion, it is to know Jesus more and more. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. In Paul's eyes, everything else is worthless when compared to knowing Christ. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine a little girl. She walks into the mall I have two little girls, so I'm thinking one day she's probably going to do this with my wife. Imagine a little girl walking into a mall, and at the checkout line, she sees this beautiful strand of pearls. But they're fake pearls, but she still sees them, and it catches her attention. That's all that she wants, right? She's like, mom, mom, can I I have these pearls? Can I have these pearls? And Uh, the mom wisely says if you want these pearls like you got to do some chores around the house and every time you do chores i'll give you some money until you finally have enough money where you can go buy the pearls and so the 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 child the, the the daughter the little girl is so excited so you know every single day she's waking up and her mom has this chore list and she knocks it off and every day she gets paid just a little bit until finally she has enough money to go to the mall and buy these strain to fake pearls and so she goes with her mom She pulls out all the change in her pocket, she gets it, and she is so excited about these pearls. I mean, you would think that is just like what makes her the happiest in all the world. You know, she goes to her friends at school and she shows them, you know, the the, the bracelet of pearls. And and so then her her dad walks in one night, you know, as the the daughter is staring at these things, her dad walks in one night and says, sweetheart, you know, I love you, right? Yes, daddy, I, I know that you love me. He says, can I have your pearls? <laughs> and the daughter goes, uh, dad, you know, I, I work so hard for these pearls. I, uh, if it's okay with you, like, I, I don't want to give them up just yet. And he says, that's okay, sweetie. You know, tucks her in good night. The next night, same thing. Hey, sweetheart, you know, I love you, right? Yes, daddy. I know that you love me. He says, Hey, can, can I have your pearls? And she says, No, dad. He like, You know, like, I, again, I worked so hard for this. I love these. Like, all my friends love it on my wrist. Like, I don't want to get this. And night after night, the dad is doing this. And he's asking, Can I have your pearls? Until one night, he walks in, and you see the little girl has a fist. Uh, and you know, enclosed in that fist are her pearls. And the dad walks in, and tears are rolling down her eyes. And, and uh, she says to her dad, she, she says, Dad, I don't know why you always ask for me to have these pearls, but you keep asking me. I, I trust you. I believe there's a reason. I want you to have, I want you to have these pearls. And uh, the dad, you know, reaches over, and he takes the pearls, and he puts them in one pocket, and then he reaches into his other pocket, and he pulls out this strand of real pearls that he's been waiting to give his daughter all along. He says, here, sweetie, these are for you. I I tell that story because in Paul's eyes, right, this whole world that we're living for, it's just the strand of fake pearls. Like at the end of the day, they don't have any value. They're just worthless. And Paul is saying, this is what Paul's getting at when he's saying everything else is worthless. He's saying, you hold up the entire world. Hold it all up there. All of its riches, all of its thrills, all of its fun, all of its pleasures, all its enjoyments, And when you hold it up next to Jesus, all of this is worthless. Jesus is the strand of real pearls, not the strand of fake pearls. This is the goal for Paul. It is to know Christ. Before Paul experienced Jesus in this real way, this real personal, life-shattering way, Paul's life was aimed at being the best in terms of religious devotion. This was his goal, and you might have different ones. But I plead with you, don't make your life about anything else other than knowing Christ. Paul recognized he was living wrongly and he repented and he turned from his old way of life. Follow Jesus. What does it look like practically for us to pursue Jesus as the all consuming passion in our lives? This goal, as Paul puts it, what does it look like? Three quick ways as we're about to be closing here in a minute, it looks like, number one, it looks like whenever I'm called to choose between anything in this world and Jesus, I choose Jesus. If given the choice between anything in this world and Christ, I'm gonna say no to this and yes to Christ. I mean, the applications here are gonna be countless, right? This means Sunday gatherings and life groups, they're the big rocks that we never give up in our schedule because it's in these Sunday gatherings and it's our time in life. I'm sorry, you call them community groups. Our, our church calls them laugh groups, right? But it's in your community groups, right? That it's like, this is where you experience Jesus as you pursue and talk about him together. This means that in my time management, I'm putting time with God first before entertainment or time with friends. That means in romantic relationships, if they're jeopardizing my relationship with Jesus, then you know what? I In the relationship, whenever I'm given a choice between the world and Christ, what it looks like to count Jesus as my treasure, I I say yes to Christ. That would be the first way. The second is this it looks like approaching everything in this world in the way that it draws me nearer to Christ so that I may gain more of Him. Everything in this world, I see it through a new lens, I see it with new eyes. I'm looking at this world and I'm trying to figure out how this can bring me into communion with Jesus. It means that if we're studying, we're studying in a way that helps us understand more of God's design. Studying in a way that leads you to worship. Jesus reigns over biology and physics and political science. And If I'm trying to gain Christ, I'm taking whatever I'm studying and I'm connecting it to who God is so that it can lead me to worship, not just knowledge that's useless. That means if you're Dating, date in a way that makes much of Christ. I mean, give your relationship some substance. Talk about Jesus's goodness and his kindness. Find ways to serve Jesus together. If you're parents, don't settle like Chelsea and I do time and time again. We're working on this. Don't just settle for the the motions of family life where you wake up, make the kids breakfast, go to work, come home, kiss each other goodnight, and then do it all over again. No, like Find ways as a family to worship Jesus together. If you're going to pursue Jesus as the goal of life, then one, choose him over the world, and two, make everything in this world come into connection with who Christ is. And then finally, it looks like experiencing joy found in Christ, even if the whole world is taken from you. For Paul, you know, he's refuting these false teachers, and he's saying, Jesus plus good works, does not equal salvation. And then he's saying Jesus plus anything doesn't equal salvation. Or you can't add to it. But this is Paul's equation for life. He's saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Even if the entire world came crashing down on Paul and actually it did time and time again for Paul he still has the greatest treasure in the universe he has Christ himself this is actually how biblical writers talk about the presence of God in Psalm 73 26 the psalmist writes my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever My body may fail me, my treasures on earth may be taken from me, but at the end of the day, God is my portion. I find my happiness ultimately in God. I'm grateful for the gifts. Praise God when he gives them, but I am more concerned about the giver. Psalm 27:4. the one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. The psalmist's prayer is not that he would hold on to anything in this world, but his greatest delight is being in his temple, delighting in God's perfections. His source of joy comes not in things, but in God's presence. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and this is what it says. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, There are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails. And fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks will die in the fields. The cattle barns are empty. I mean, talk about a bad day. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. I mean, talk about every single thing going wrong. Trees dying, crops dying, cattle dying, food and livestock down the drain. Everything that you and I would depend on for our well-being and security taken. And nonetheless, Habakkuk is saying, I am still going to rejoice. Paul's in this camp. Give me nothing in this world, but give me Jesus and I'll have everything. Whatever it takes for me to, to know Jesus more and more, that's what I want. I have, uh, I have someone at our church, uh, um, and he, he's in pharmacy school right now at Northeastern, and he, uh, he had to pass this class to continue in the program. If he didn't pass the class, he'd have to wait a whole another year until he could take that one class because apparently at Northeastern, you know, it builds on one another. You have to pass one class to get to the next and uh, you know, he's praying and praying and praying that God would get into this class and pass this class and he didn't pass the class. Right? And uh, <laughs> so now his life's on standstill for the next nine months. And it's been three months since that has happened. And I have seen that guy's faith grow like no one else's. He's been reading faith-based books. He's been praying and seeking God's presence. He's been involved at King's Hill. Uh, you know, what he would have said is a setback. He now says, no, this is a catalyst for me knowing Christ. And if you were to say, hey, would you go back in time and like pass the class so that you could continue with the program? My guess is he would say no because God has used this failing of a class to bring him closer with God. And at the end of the day, that's what he wants more than anything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is why Paul can rejoice in suffering. Like, whatever it takes for me to know Jesus, that's what I want. If it's in chains, if it's beaten, if it's torturing, if it's shipwrecked, whatever it might be, whatever it takes for me to know Jesus, sign me up for that. Paul is running towards something. His eyes are fixed on Christ. Get this, he he lives for the moment when he'll finally breathe his last, and he sees God face to face. There's a finish line that Paul has in mind. And all he wants is to cross that finish line and be in Jesus' presence forever. Let me just end with two quick exhortations. As we think about what Paul is saying, it's not about good works, even though major world religions are going to say that's what you need to do to know God. It's not about that. In fact, good works are garbage when compared to Jesus' perfection and holiness And yet Paul's also going to say, get rid of the garbage, but make Jesus the goal. And so here's the two exhortations. Number one, I'm going to say we, because I'm including myself in this. Can we stop trying to prove ourselves by our accomplishments? Any trophy in this life is going to be garbage in the next. The world's going to tell you to... Uh, uh, to, to create your identity it's something that you have to work for and achieve and the gospel says your identity is not something you work for and achieve The gospel, uh, your identity is something that you receive and the gospel makes that happen the righteousness of God is not something you can earn or perfect, the righteousness of God is a gift given to you you cannot work for it we are a child of God not because of what we do but because of what Christ has done here's how this helps me When I take the gospel to heart, I can rest from building this trophy case and showing it off to the world. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me, it's about Christ, and it takes the pressure off. That's the first exhortation. Can we stop trying to build this trophy case? Here's the second one. Can we stop living for the strand of fake pearls? Is there something that you're finding in your life that you just can't let go of that ultimately is hindering you from enjoying more of Christ? Is there something that you have placed more important than your faith in him? Remember, Jesus is of infinite value. Knowing him is the purpose of life. St. Augustine, he says this, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. There's infinitely more of Jesus to know and cherish and treasure in and delight in. Would you seek him this morning?